Well, we're now in the season of Lent, and that also marks a new sermon series for us as a community. Uh, last year during this time, we went through the book of Malachi. I don't know if you remember that. It was a pretty intense season. Uh, this year, we're going to stick with the minor prophet theme. We're going to be going through the book of Jonah. Uh, just by way of reminder, the season of Lent, it's a time of repentance. It's a time of aligning ourselves with God and intentionally making space in our lives for deeper spiritual renewal so that we can become more fully the people of Easter, so that we can see these broken areas of our lives, these broken parts of our lives that we can't seem to fix and see the power of the resurrection grip us and transform us. This is the goal of Lent. And as we do this, we begin to have new passions, passions that align with the things that God is passionate about. And this is why we chose the book of Jonah. Because in Jonah, we see God's passion for cities. God is passionate about cities being renewed. And as God brings about our own personal renewal, Jonah reminds us that it's never for our own sake. God renews us to send us out into the world. He calls us to go to the places that need renewal most, even our own city. But the book of Jonah is also a book about how we refuse the call of God. It's a book that invites us to wrestle with the complexities of wanting to restrict God, of wanting to opt out of what God is doing in the world. And it's a book that forces us to evaluate how we try to shrink God down to more manageable sizes and to a God who doesn't impinge upon our comforts, doesn't impinge upon our freedoms, a God who can make no demands, who has no mission that extends beyond our walls. But no one really cares about that when you get into the book of Jonah. You know, when you get into the book of Jonah, people have one question for you. They say, hold up. Was Jonah actually swallowed by a whale? And why they say whale like whale is beyond me. But, you know, that's a fair question. And good, good and faithful Christians disagree over this point. That's okay. Some say yes. Some say no. Some say, I just don't know. It's a good question, but it can also be the wrong question. And while what actually occurred matters... These sort of questions are not the sort of questions that Jonah is asking us. And what's more important is how Jonah narrates his story. Whether it's literal or not, he writes his book in the format of a parable. Jonah, he provokes us. He stirs the pot. He doesn't resolve the parable. Instead, he leaves us with an unanswered question. He leaves us with a pointed question. A question that God undeniably pointed at him first. And so Jonah, he retells his story then in the form of a parable to issue a prophetic challenge. The God we worship is bigger than we dare imagine, bigger than our narrowly constructed definitions of him. And what matters to God is vastly bigger than our self-seeking cares and worries. So this week, we start in the beginning. We start with the first three verses of chapter 1. And in it, we get to look at Jonah's almost allergic reaction to God's call. And in this passage, we also have to confront how creative we are, too, when it comes to fleeing God's call. So open your Bibles with me to Jonah. We're going to read the first three verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. 
With verse 1, we can situate ourselves. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Uh, Jonah, he's mentioned in one other place in the scriptures. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. And with this one verse, we can actually get a bit more background of who Jonah was and what his time was like. And, and, and this is important because it will help us as we go through the book of Jonah. So in Kings, we read, Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. All right, so we know Jonah's dad. He was Amittai. Uh, Jonah was from Gath-Hefer. Uh, he did his prophetic work under King Jeroboam II, which puts Jonah somewhere in the first half of the 8th century B.C. Jeroboam II is a, an important detail. Jeroboam, he's one of the many kings of Israel who's described as someone who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He was a bad king. And, and Jonah, he worked alongside King Jeroboam. He prophesied about Israel expanding their borders. Jonah, he was a nationalist in the sense that he was uh, primarily focused on Israel increasing politically and geographically. Whereas Jonah's contemporaries... Uh, the prophets Amos and Hosea, they prophesied against King Jeroboam and Israel. They called out the moral and spiritual bankruptcy of the king and the nation. They too were for Israel, but in very different ways than Jonah. They wanted to see Israel spiritually renewed. They wanted to see Israel return to the Lord with their hearts. And so in this cultural moment, we see two very different prophetic imaginations emerge. There's Jonah, who's concerned about nationalism and boundaries and borders. And Amos and Hosea, who are concerned about spiritual renewal and faithfulness. So in this time, where a nation is spiritually bankrupt, where the king is spiritually bankrupt, anyone who is reading this that considered themselves faithful to God, faithful to Yahweh, would say, the word of the Lord came to who? To Jonah? Really? And there's an irony at play here. Uh, Amittai, it actually means faithfulness. So Jonah could be uh, Jonah, the son of faithfulness. And anyone could rightly ask, well, who will he be faithful to? Will Jonah be faithful to God or to Jeroboam? Will Jonah be faithful to his nationalism or to God's vision for the world? Or will Jonah just be faithful to his own self-interests? This opening verse, it situates us in a time and place. But it also reminds us. That the word of the Lord doesn't come to those who deserve it. That God doesn't show partiality when he makes himself known to people. God makes himself known. He doesn't, he's never done it based on worthiness. You know, he simply reveals himself and allows people to respond. And when he does so, people don't always respond accordingly. They can ignore him. They can misuse what they've heard. They can filter it through their political lenses. They can even flee from his call. But even so, God is willing to invite even the worst of us and even the worst in us to respond to who he is. Because ultimately, the word of the Lord is Christ himself who's been revealed to all the nations and everyone is, in, is invited to respond to the word of the Lord. So what then does God invite Jonah to do? What, what's the response required of Jonah? Verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Where God sends Jonah 
is just as shocking as who the word of the Lord came to. Jonah's from little Gath Heifer, you know, and he's sent to the great city of Nineveh. That would be like God calling someone from like backwoods town in Saskatchewan and sending them to an international hub like Dubai. There's a massive cultural disconnect. But even worse, there is nothing to be desired about Nineveh. You know, it's not like Dubai. It's not like that would be an interesting thing to go and see. Uh, in the ancient world, Nineveh was a bad, bad place. It was the capital of the Assyrian nation. A.M. Lewis, a Jewish writer, he describes Nineveh in a really helpful way. This is what he says. The Assyrians were the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. They were the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. They were the pitiless power-crazed foe. They uprooted entire peoples in their fury for conquest. They extinguished the northern kingdom of Israel. For Jonah, Nineveh then was no ordinary city. It carried doom-laden, tragic memories. It stood as a symbol of evil incarnate. Nineveh was a bad, bad place. And unsurprisingly, Nineveh's evil has come up before the Lord. And surely Jonah would have thought, excuse me, God, did I hear you right? You know, the Assyrians, their capital, Nineveh. Remember, Jonah, he's a prophet concerned about borders and boundaries. He's, he's concerned about building up walls and expanding Israel's geography and separating from the Assyrians, separating from cities like Nineveh. Surely Jonah would be thinking, God, you're calling the wrong person. You know, send the prophet Amos, send Hosea, send anybody but me. I'm concerned about Israel, not Assyria. You know, I'm, not, I'm concerned about Jerusalem, not Nineveh. But God says to Jonah, go to another nation. Go to another city. Go outside of the walls of Israel. Go to Nineveh. I'm concerned about their evil. Perhaps the weight of this would sink in if God came to us and said, go to Nigeria and prophesy against Boko Haram. Go to Thailand and prophesy against the piglet gangs who control child prostitution. Go to Libya and prophesy against ISIS. Call out the evil of any one of these groups, but don't do it from home. No hashtags allowed. You know, Go to their territory, do it on their turf, confront them for me. Imagine being called to leave uh, the ideological walls we've built up to feel safe, no longer protected by the freedom of speech, the laws we're accustomed to, the boundaries and borders we've put in place to separate ourselves from groups like these. This might come close to what Jonah's feeling. This is a big unusual, terrifying call that pushes Jonah outside of everything that's comfortable to him and pushes him on everything he believes. God is the God of Israel. He shouldn't be the God of Nineveh. In, in response to the word, Jonah the faithful, he, he shows us his cards. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah, in telling this, he can't emphasize enough how much he tried to flee. 
He rose and he fled. He got up and he got out of town. He headed in the opposite direction as far as he could go. Nineveh, he, it, was, it was north of him. And so he went southwest uh, to Joppa. That's 550 miles away. And if that wasn't far enough away, he, he, it says he went down into the ship, right? We're getting this emphasis of a descent from God's call. He goes down, he goes down, and he gets in the ship to Tarshish, another 2,500 miles away. Jonah is doing everything he can to flee from the presence of the Lord. And where he tries to go is ultimately very telling. He tries to go to Tarshish. By any measure, Tarshish was the opposite of Nineveh. We don't know a ton about it, but what we do know is that it's often described like a sort of Shangri-La, a utopian city. It's where he wanted to be. You know, it was a port city with, with beaches and beautiful trees and beauty and tranquility. Uh, in modern times, if you were in Israel and, and, and you were Jonah, which is where God lived, and God came to you and he said, go uh, to Nineveh, it would be like hearing, go to Iraq. And you think, well, I could go to Iraq, or I could go to Spain. You know, I could go to Costa de la Ruz, and I, I could take in the sun and kick back and drink some sangria, you know. Uh, it's just the opposite direction. But there is just some complexity brewing in all of this that we, ha we have to look at. Uh, technically, technically, Jonah obeys half of the command. He rises and he goes. That's what God said to do. He just changes the location. I won't go to Nineveh. I'll go to Tarshish. And if we're really clever, we'll con convince ourselves that that's close enough to the command, so we're okay. Uh, like it does for many, my professional life began with a paper route, you know, a very noble rite of passage. I delivered the penny saver. And uh, I had the command, go, deliver newspapers to the houses on thy route. Uh, bring glad tidings of penny-saving joy. And, and so I went with my mom in her Volvo, and I faithfully delivered newspapers. <laughs> I discovered quite quickly just how boring it could be to put newspaper after paper in a mailbox after mailbox. And, and my mom grew tired of it as well. And one day, she sat me down, and she said, Love, I have my own job. It's about time you did your own job. I was not thrilled about this. I was not thrilled about having to bear the weight of this command by myself. Go and deliver thy newspapers to thy houses. Uh, but I went, you know, with my newspapers in my satchel, very noble. Uh, but I decided I would ever so subtly change the command. I'll go deliver the newspapers. I'll just change where. I found a drainage ditch. It seemed hungry for newspapers. And so I shoved the hundred or so newspapers in the drainage ditch. And I just wandered aimlessly around the neighborhood for about an hour until I thought, you know, enough time has passed. I can go home without any suspicion. I forgot that I live in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, the next day, it just rained and rained. And that was the only drainage ditch on that street, and I inadvertently flooded three yards. It didn't take much detective work to figure out it was me. My mom got a call and she drove me. And I had to, in the rain, you know, pull out all of these soggy newspapers out of the drainage ditch. It was just disgusting. And I got fired. Uh, but that wasn't even the worst part. My mom sat in her Volvo and just watched in the warmth of her Volvo while sipping cocoa. <laughs> now, I took seriously the command. I went and I delivered newspapers. But I twisted the command. I changed their destination. 
we might twist the command. We might feel like we're actually keeping it, but in reality, we're fleeing. We're running. We're trying to get as far away from God as possible. Our problem is if God said to us, go to Vancouver, most of us, we would say, yes. You know, we would say, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. You know, no, we're Canadian. We'd be more reserved, I know. But inwardly, we'd be thinking, yes. You know, Vancouver is our Tarshish baby. It's one of the most desirable places to live in the world. A friend asked me, who lives in Orlando, uh, if you had to pick one, the mountains, the ocean, or the city, what would you pick? And I said, I don't have to. I live in Vancouver. <laughs> Ranked in the top three cities globally, it's our Tarshish. It's not Nineveh. We would say yes to God if he said, go to Vancouver. And we're hoping he will say to us, stay in Vancouver, right? Go to this city. But I want to suggest that we would still twist his command. God doesn't say, he doesn't just say, go to Jonah. He says, go and call out against Nineveh, for their evil has come up before me. You see, we would gladly take the first part. We would go where God tells us to go, especially if it's Vancouver. But we twist twist the second part, calling out against the city. First of all, I think we have to recognize uh, that Vancouver is both Tarshish and Nineveh. But most of us, we want to focus on the Tarshish part, the good, the beauty. And we, ne- we neglect the problems. We neglect the Nineveh in our midst. Uh, sure, you know, Vancouver isn't going on bloodthirsty political military campaigns, uh, unless you consider Gregor that. But uh, there's still injustice in our streets. That's a bad political joke, I'm sorry. Anyways, uh, there's, there's injustice in our streets. Intense loneliness and isolation. You know, an ever-increasing disparity between the rich and the poor. Racial divisions. A staggeringly active sex trade industry. And a trafficking industry. An ongoing homelessness problem that just can't be abated. And even if we see these sort of things, we often don't address it. If we see any serious problems in our city and we have an opportunity to speak, even if it's just in a friend's life, we usually let it slide. We keep silent. We don't want to cause a scene. We don't want to stir the pot. And heaven forbid that we suggest that God might actually have something to say about any of these issues. So we say to God, we'll go to Vancouver, but we'll be silent. And maybe we even hope to see these things change, but we say, God, send somebody else. Send Amos. Send Hosea. We also have to be aware not to focus only on Vancouver as bad, bad Nineveh. There are deep social and cultural problems in our city. That's undeniable. There is a spiritual void and absence. But there's also common good that can be affirmed and even celebrated. There are causes we can partner in. The city is more complex than being all bad or all good. And God, he he calls us to call both out. Call out the problems, but point people towards me and what I envision for that. Point out the good, but point people towards me and how that's just a glimmer of who I am. But the real underlying issue is that we just want to run away from the call of God. We want to run away from joining him in what he's doing in the world and what he's doing in our own city. We view our city just as a place to live. It's where we are. And we get sucked up into the day-to-day rhythms of our lives and we don't live within our city as if Uh, We're called to it for the sake of God's purposes. Uh, 
We, we, we don't create time or space in our lives either to go to the city and give to it rather than relentlessly taking from it. No, we see the city as something to enjoy, something to indulge in, whether it's the seawall or Stanley Park or our favorite restaurants or uh, the nearby mountains. And there's just no room in our lives to participate in its spiritual and social and cultural renewal, whatever that means. Uh, there's just no room. There's no time. There's barely room in our own lives to get done the things we want to get done. But that's usually because our lives have become so bloated from living solely for ourselves and our own enjoyment and our own goals and our own wants. The truth is we just don't want to make the sacrifice of comfort and time that's required for us to get meaningfully engaged. We would rather settle for creating a safe little church bubble that you know, doesn't seep out into every section of our lives. We want God. We just don't want God to send us into the city on his behalf. We'd, we don't want God to send us into our workplaces on our, his behalf. We don't want him to send us in, into, his, into our families or our friendships on his behalf. We don't mind if God reaches the city and extends the gospel. We just don't want God to do it through us. So essentially we're saying, you can be Lord, just not Lord over these parts. How are we any different than Jonah? How are we any different than Jonah? We want a smaller version of God, a God who fits within our own comforts and desires. We can make no inconvenient demands upon our lives, but if this is the case, we're settling for an idol made in our own image, not the living God. What we fail to recognize is that when we flee from God's call to join God in his mission, we're actually fleeing from God himself. Look again at verse 3. Twice we're told Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord. In the Hebrew, it's literally the face of the Lord. This is Israel's way of describing their intimate and unique relationship with God. So Jonah, he's not just fleeing from God's presence. He's fleeing from who God is. He's fleeing from the intimacy of knowing God and seeing God for who God is. Because the reality is, Jonah does not like what he sees. God has always been a God of mission. Ever since the first disobedient bites in the garden, God has been actively at work within the the world to restore everything to himself. And when God set Israel apart, it wasn't for their own sake. Israel was supposed to be a light and a blessing to the world. By the way they live, they're supposed to show God's ways to the world. They're supposed to be a sign, a witness, a picture of how things were meant to be, what the world looks like when it lives in harmony with God. They were supposed to be a place where heaven intersected with earth. Because God is not solely the God of Israel. He is the God of every nation. He is the God of the universe, even the God of the Assyrians in Nineveh. And if Israel looked to God's face, this is what they would see. His face is set toward the world. God's eyes are always searching for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the foreigner and the slave and the sinner. And God aches for humanity to be restored to him, even his enemies. 
And he weeps over the brokenness of individuals, but he also weeps over the systematic brokenness and injustices that take place in cities. Jesus wept over Jerusalem after all. And we see the face of God in Christ. And that's why he's so alluring. That's why Jesus draws us in. So if we want to know our calling and our mission within our own city, we gaze upon the face of Jesus, the very face of God. Because Jesus is the one who cares for the poor and the widow. He's the one who adopts all of us who are spiritual orphans. He's the one who welcomes the foreigner and the slaves and the sinners. And he's the one who would even dine with his enemies. And he's the one who offers himself freely to all and any who will receive him and offers the invitation, follow me. Maybe following Jesus then looks like adopting an orphan and bringing him or her into your family. Maybe you engage with the kids at the Boys and Girls Club or you open your home for foster care. Maybe you make a weekly visit at a retirement home and spend time with someone who's elderly and has no family anymore or you bring them groceries. Maybe you make more than a roof, more than a project, and you actually start to treat them like your friends and your family, and you invest more than just every three weeks in our rhythm. Maybe you make yourself available to mentor immigrants new to Canada to help them study uh, for immigration and teach them about Canada, or maybe you teach people ESL. Maybe you just start with the basics by inviting your neighbor over for high tea, like a good Brit. Or inviting the person next to you for lunch if you've never been to lunch with them. Or finding someone here that you don't know and inviting them out to lunch after the service. But we don't do any of these things just because they're good to do or they're right to do. But as Jesus teaches in a parable, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king, which is Jesus, will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to me, one of the least of these, you did it to me. If we want to see the face of Jesus more fully in our lives, it'll happen when we start caring for others as if they are Christ himself. It'll happen when we get a glimpse of how Jesus cared for others and we follow him in that pattern and we realize that we're ultimately serving him. This is the word of the Lord that has been revealed to every single person in this room. This is a call that is specific to every individual in this room and there is an invitation to respond. And all of this, it sounds good and beautiful and worth it. And yet, day in and day out, we still flee from living like this. And that's what Jonah is forcing us to confront. Why is it that we flee from a God who is so profound and beautiful? What's going on in our hearts that we run away from this call? Because there's something in our hearts that echoes the story of Jonah. And over Lent, God invites us to wrestle with that part of our hearts. The part of our hearts that convince us that doing half of what God asks is enough. 
The part of our hearts that still tries to leave God behind. The part of our hearts that avoids his presence. The part of us that would prefer a God we can tame. The part of us that just doesn't want God to be God. Lent is a time to recognize this in our hearts. And it's a time to invite God into that space with repentance.